0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Ciao a tutti. When I think about the best history podcast, the first that comes to my mind is always A History of Byzantium by Robin Pearson. Wonderfully documented, serious, balanced, quietly moving, and filled with true passion for the history of the Eastern Romans. It is all I want my podcast to be. But what about the Western Romans? I am the host of the podcast Storia d'Italia, or the History of Italy, in italiano. The History of the Peninsula and Byzantium, are intertwined across the centuries through proximity and conflict. Rome is where the Roman Empire started. Italy is where Justinian wasted a fortune trying to reconquer what the Empire had lost. The papacy was the Italian based power that defined for good and ill the relationship between the West and the East. Venice was the great city that traded with Constantinopolis and then shockingly, heavily contributed to its sacking. Italy is where a lot of the Byzantine scholars came to live when their empire crumbled under their feet, helping to sparkle the Renaissance. And that is just scratching the surface. Normans, Angevines, Genoese, all Italian powers had something to do with Byzantium, sooner or later. If you like to know more about the history of Italy, or if you want to better your Italian, then allora venite ad ascoltare il mio podcast sulla storia d'Italia. I start with Constantine and I made my way through the waning years of the West. But now it's time to leave you to Robin and his magnificent A History of Byzantium. Arrivederci. <laughs>
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 196, Cultural Revival. Our last century of narrative ran from 1025 to 1080 AD. Since that's a relatively short period of time, we will only pause our story for two episodes before we resume. Next time, we're going to talk about our sources going forward, So today is our only chance to look back from 1080 at the century that's just passed. This was a period when the intellectual culture of the Byzantine world began to break free from some of the restrictions of the past. This went hand-in-hand with the economic growth and military success we've witnessed in the narrative. And this cultural experimentation will continue even as the borders of the empire begin to contract So often we reduce Byzantium's story to its military frontiers and forget that developments in different fields continued on regardless. This cultural revival took many forms, including art, architecture, literature, philosophy, theology. Inevitably, I'm going to have to do some reducing of my own and restrict our discussion to what a half-hour podcast can reasonably take. And since the main character of our story is the Byzantine state, naturally our focus is on those intellectuals whose thoughts had the power to challenge the norms and order of the elite. In this case, I'm actually going to boil down this whole era into the works of just two men, and both of them Constantinopolitans to boot, so one could see this as a very unrepresentative survey of Byzantium's cultural revival – However, I think you'll see why I chose these two as we explore their lives. Let's just remind ourselves of the broader state of intellectual culture, a culture we understand largely through the written texts which have survived. Roman literary output declined during the crisis years of the 7th and 8th centuries. Court propaganda and histories were tricky to produce when defeat was the constant headline and the impoverishment of the elites meant that those who could afford to dedicate their time to intellectual pursuits dwindled. Churchmen did have the time, and treatises and hagiography continued to be written, but the dislocation produced by Arab and Bulgar raids made it difficult for those texts to gain a wide audience. The triumph of the iconophiles over the iconoclasts marked a turning point in literary culture. Now, a coherent explanation had been found for the past. God had chastised his people by temporarily empowering the Saracens, but now that orthodoxy had been re-established, better times were ahead. This new understanding of Byzantine life enabled writers to find their voice again, and the government itself became a major patron of many works, now, we talked about this during the reign of Constantine VII, Porfiroenitos, the man who wrote and commissioned several works detailing the rise of the Macedonian dynasty, uh, correct procedures for court ceremonies, and a guide to imperial administration. A whole series of these encyclopedic works were commissioned by the palace and continued to be produced during the reign of Basil II. These included official church calendars a history of Constantinople, and a literal encyclopedia, the Suda, which had 30,000 entries covering all aspects of Mediterranean life. In the meantime, intellectuals with the platform to produce works of literature began to emerge. You may remember the patriarch Photius, who helped explain and expound on the triumph of the icons, or Leo the Deacon who wrote a classicizing history of the reigns of Nicephorus Phocas and John Zimisces During this period the Macedonian emperors also began to provide funds for higher education encouraging men to develop the rhetorical skills needed to praise their rulers with encomia and panegyric And although Basil II shunned court theatrics, his long and prosperous reign saw literary culture begin to flourish on a private basis, as it had back in Justinian's day and before. Men began to write poems to win favour from newly wealthy patrons. Buildings and tombstones looked bare unless they were decorated with epigrams, and schools of rhetoric and grammar began to compete with one another for students. The men who graduated from those schools would go on to win positions in the bureaucracy from which they could support the schools that had trained them. We discussed the high point of this development in episode 189 under Constantine Monomachos. It was during his reign that two schools were established from state funds, one for philosophy and one for law. Head of philosophical studies was the ubiquitous Michael Zelos, who we will return to shortly. To give you an example of what was being written, we should take a quick glance at the career of Christopher of Mytilene. Christopher was a contemporary of Pselos, who also rose during Monomachus' reign. He started off as a scribe, worked in the financial ministries, and was then promoted to become a judge in the provinces. Eventually he returned to the capital and collected various high court titles, including that of patrician. Now that's a pretty good civil service career, and what helped Christopher along the way were the thousands of poems he wrote. He wrote them on a huge variety of topics and displayed amazing versatility in their construction. For example, he wrote four separate liturgical calendars, each giving biographical details of the saints whose feast days were to be celebrated, and each calendar was written in a different poetic metre. Christopher was also popular with those seeking epigrams. He wrote hundreds of them, and we know of several buildings and tombs which bore inscriptions that he'd penned. Through his personal collection of poems, we also get rich detail on life in 11th century Constantinople. He describes processions and riots, chariot races and relic collections, and importantly for our sense of literary culture, he also describes rhetoric competitions held between different schools, sometimes with members of the imperial family asked to judge who spoke best. Writing was starting to become a means of advancement and personal enrichment again, encouraging fellow civil servant and judge Michael Ataliatis, our eyewitness at Manzikert, to pen his history in the hopes that it would lead to further promotion. Going back to Christopher, though, his poems suggest he was a fairly typical member of the urban elite. They don't reveal any particular philosophy or ideas, more style than substance. But despite this, his most infamous poem asks the kind of questions that rarely find voice in the Byzantine world. And I've adapted the translation slightly to make this clearer. Lord, if men are made of the same dust and share the same nature. How is it that they differ so in their fortune? Of course, things do not stay the same. They do change. But how and when? Even in the most disorderly of times, only one of ten thousand rich men fall, while out of thirty thousand miserable paupers only three succeed and join the upper lot. The quest of justice burns me, lord, What can one say, that you created one with your own hands, while the other has a different creator? Aren't we all made by your fingers? Yet some enjoy not only what is necessary, but much more, while the others strive for sheer crumbs. Is this equity? Christopher is questioning the whole system, a cry rarely heard. Even the fathers of the Orthodox Church, like John Chrysostom, accepted that some were rich and some were poor. Their solution was to chastise the rich for their excesses and encourage them to be charitable as often as possible. Even Christopher doesn't take his revolutionary thought further, instead descending into melancholy. The poem concludes, "'How long are you going to keep our world standing? Unleash a quake or another deluge!' But without a second ark or a new Noah, all should disappear, not leaving any remains. If, as you promised, you do not want to inundate the earth again, just hit Atlas with your hand and with him destroy all the world, mix the earth to the firmament. This would make for general equality. In the end, Christopher doesn't question the system directly, nor God's part in it, Instead, he absolves his creator from blame and damns all mankind for this situation. This poem may be a funeral lament or some other construction on Christopher's part, rather than a genuine pine for the poor. But if the expansion of literary culture could push even a careerist like Christopher to ask tough questions, what of those with greater ambitions? This brings us to the two contrasting figures I'd like to focus on. The first we know very well, Michael Pselos, courtier to the stars. Pselos was of course our source for intimate biographies of the emperors during the past century, and we discussed his works at length in episode 176, but such is his importance to Byzantine culture that we return to him yet again. The context here is Pselos' restoration and adoration of pagan learning. As you know, Pselos was a polymath who wrote on a vast array of subjects. History, philosophy, grammar, rhetoric, education, medicine, law, music, mathematics, astronomy. He encouraged his students to acquire all kinds of knowledge. A philosopher ought to be multifarious, he wrote. He was a humanist. He was interested in every aspect of human life, from the mundane to the magical, and wrote on every topic you can imagine, Antony Koldalis says that his literary versatility is unparalleled among ancient and medieval writers, and his epistemological scope as a teacher surpasses even that of Aristotle. All of this to say that Pselos' rapacious appetite for knowledge was naturally going to lead him to pre-Christian thought, and his desire to revive higher education meant he was going to teach it to others. Much of this ancient Greek and Roman writing had been preserved, even in ecclesiastical circles. Some texts were thought to contain useful information, be it science or history, as some were preserved because of their beautiful Attic Greek or rhetorical stylings. Rarely do we hear of the church burning or destroying pagan texts, but certainly many fell by the wayside for their apparent lack of utility in a Christian society. The key for those who wanted to learn more was to have a good excuse for their interest in pagan thought, a caution which Pselos did not at times show. The length of a single letter, he wrote, cannot contain the secrets of Plato's boundless thought any more than a bucket can fit the Atlantic Ocean. In his voluminous writings, he often mingled Christian and pre-Christian thought together in ways which began to cause alarm. In one treatise, he claims that though the doctrine of the Trinity is self-sufficient, the Greeks can help us to better understand it. Elsewhere, he analyses the work of the church father, Gregory of Nazianzos, by comparing the construction of his ideas to those of Socrates and Plato. Cellos also wrote treatises on the occult, on precious stones, and on non-Christian systems of belief. Given he was made a philosophy professor by the emperor, there was little danger in reading and writing about pagan texts, but politically, these activities could always be used against him. Orthodoxy, in both senses of the word, was still the ideology of the state. As you may remember, Cellos was forced to sign a declaration of his Christian belief and abandon the court at the end of Monombachus' reign. And though he was so well connected that he found his way back soon enough, it was a warning to his students that being associated too closely with the wisdom of the ancients could get you into trouble. For those who followed Pselos' path to higher education, it was inevitable that one would end up asking questions of the orthodox establishment. We talked earlier about calendars of saints' days. Their feasts dominated the public activity of both the patriarch and imperial officials, along with celebrations of past emperors or events like the Triumph of Icons. The stories behind these great figures were fairly uniform in their narrative. Those who had strived for God had emerged victorious, and bad times were ascribable either to God's displeasure or the work of Satan. Anyone who studied pre-Christian texts was going to gain access to alternative explanations. Pselos, for example, debunked several alleged miracles, explaining how echo chambers work or how fungus can grow in unexpected spots, He was at pains to point out that the natural world could be studied and understood. In one poem, he set out the biological functions of epilepsy, arguing that demonic possession need not be behind it. On a grander scale, of course, his Chronographia ascribes Roman military defeats to the decision-making of its emperors rather than punishment for sin. His attitude towards sinful behaviour in general certainly reveals a spirit that runs contrary to the wisdom of the heroes of the church. Many saints' lives tell the story of a holy man who, through ascetic feats of endurance, was able to rid himself of earthly desire. Those urges which come naturally to most of us are seen as thoroughly displeasing to God, and the battle for the true Christian is cast in terms of suffering a Christ-like torture in order to rid oneself of the offending desires. Pselloos, by contrast, wants people to accept themselves as they are, rather than how they ought to be. Each should be judged by their own capabilities and strive to be better within standards fit for humans, not angels. He argues for an integrated view of humanity rather than one that alienates people from their own feelings. Again, this attitude can find expression in a way that causes little alarm. But Pselos couldn't help himself. He takes potshots at the monastic calling throughout his writings, particularly those monks who lived in splendour, despite their supposed commitment to poverty. He also wears his own sins and foibles as badges of honour, trying to stress the importance of real lived experience, as opposed to superhuman tales of virtue. Zelos was reviving a system of learning which had the potential to call into question the carefully curated official orthodoxy, and his successor as head of philosophy will be condemned for it when our narrative resumes. But Zelos' work would survive, and others would carry the torch of pagan influence forward, infusing intellectual culture with ideas that had lain dormant for many centuries. We now come to our second figure, one from the generation before Cellos, a contemporary of Basil II. A man who also called into question established wisdom, despite being in many ways the opposite of the consul of the philosophers. He was a monk known to history as Simeon the New Theologian. Simeon was born into a wealthy provincial family around 950 A.D., and was sent to the capital to get an education and enter the bureaucracy. Rather than lapping up the pleasures of the court, though, Simeon was drawn to the monastic life. In his late twenties he was admitted to the studious Monastery, where he began to pursue the extreme feats of asceticism we referenced earlier, fasting and standing still for hours and hours at a time, praying throughout the night. Simeon's dedication did not help him mix well with others, and he was eventually moved to a run-down monastery dedicated to St. Marmas. After a few years, he was elected its abbot. Simeon was a true believer, who felt that the monastic calling demanded total commitment from a Christian. Though this is a perfectly fair conclusion to draw, it did not sit well with everyone who'd chosen the same path. Men came to monasteries for many reasons. Some were careerists hoping to become a bishop. Some had come for a quiet life or to retire in contemplation, while others had taken their vows simply to escape poverty. None of these excuses sat well with Simeon, who demanded high standards of behaviour and unconditional obedience. An example of his strict discipline comes from a story his favourite pupil Arsenius tells. Uh, some fried pigeons had been prepared to feed a guest visiting the monastery. When Simeon caught Arsenius looking disapprovingly at the meat, he ordered him to eat it. Monks gave up meat as part of their lifestyle, and as Arsenius tearfully chewed a piece, Simeon yelled at him to spit it out and said, You are a glutton. All these pigeons are not enough to satiate you. The intensity of Simeon's methods was aimed at purging himself and his followers of the bodily desires which lead to sin, an intensity which naturally caused many to dislike him. At one point, violence nearly broke out. Thirty of his monks stormed into a service he was giving and loudly barracked him from the floor. They then left the monastery en masse to report their abbot to the authorities. Simeon forgave them. Eventually, though, the new theologian did fall foul of the ecclesiastical establishment and was removed from his post. He moved to another site on the other side of the Bosphorus and spent his last years with his loyal followers, writing a great number of texts espousing his monastic philosophy. What Simeon had developed was a concept of an individualistic path to salvation. For the dedicated monk, he prescribed submission to a spiritual father, a man who could guide you through the ascetic rigours necessary to rid yourself of sin. Then one must become constantly humble and full of repentance, in awe at the power of God to forgive you. The culmination of this process would be a direct experience of the divine itself. Yes, Simeon believed that he had seen God, or at least a vision of his divine light. On several occasions during his life, Simeon experienced these visions. Pure, immense light would descend on him, washing out his sense of his surroundings until he felt as if he was floating out of his body. He would then be filled with immense joy and cry hot tears down his cheeks. Simeon believed that he had briefly shared in the essence of God. Simeon's order of total obedience and rigid asceticism was polarizing. As you can imagine, many men had no interest in living such a harsh life, while others found the idea of direct experience of the divine utterly exhilarating. An example of this clash comes with Simeon's belief that repentance should be man's constant state. To simply ask forgiveness for one's sins was inadequate, The true believer should weep tears of sorrow day and night. You can imagine how those of the stiff upper lip persuasion felt when seeing Simeon's disciples breaking down in uncontrollable floods of tears. As a set of ascetic practices, Simeon's activity was no threat to the established church. There are always those who feel that religious belief should be an exciting emotional experience, not a set of traditional rituals to be solemnly observed. And the new theologian always found support for his actions in the Bible and the writings of the church fathers. But when he systematized his philosophy, he was encouraging men to diverge significantly from established practice. The church put great emphasis on charity, as we discussed earlier, encouraging the wealthy to secure divine favor through philanthropy. Simeon dismisses this as a path to salvation, and though he took communion on a daily basis, he also denies the sacraments, another central feature of church life, as a way to save one's soul. Even his acceptance of a hierarchy of God, spiritual father, and emperor cuts out the rest of the ecclesiastical establishment. In a sense, this is what bothered the authorities most— the fact that Simeon drew attention to the many clergymen he considered unfit to be spiritual fathers, and instead outlining how even an unordained man who possessed the right virtues could lead the way towards salvation. It was this emphasis on spiritual fatherhood which ultimately led to Simeon's downfall. In his first vision of the divine light, He claimed that he saw his own spiritual father, Simeon Eulabes, standing at God's right hand. Such was Simeon's reverence for his now-deceased mentor that he declared him a saint, establishing a festival for him at his monastery and having icons made. None of this had been approved by higher church authorities, and when this was brought to their attention, they ruled against him, forcing Simeon into temporary exile. Simeon was, in some ways, more of a threat to the establishment than Pselos. Pagan teachings could more easily be tarred as heresy, whereas teachers who promised the chance to reach God today had always been popular, and the diffusion of such access to the divine had been one of the fears which had led to iconoclasm in the first place. This is where the similarities between Simeon and Pselos finally emerge. Both men were arguing that the path to knowledge did not just run through the corpus of approved texts. Both were trying to use the wisdom of the ancients to bring out new, exciting truths, and both had found from personal experience that there was more to life than the traditional rituals of court and church. The two were polar opposites in terms of lifestyle, but each encouraged experimentation to discover the secrets of the earth on the one hand and heaven on the other. Both figures would prove to be immensely popular amongst learned men of the future. Whether through humanism or mysticism, the expansion of Byzantine culture was opening pathways that the Orthodox establishment had gone to great lengths to close. Like Simeon's visions, this is only a taste of the full story. Hopefully it's given you a glimpse of the borders of Byzantine knowledge and the directions that people might travel in the future in search of greater enlightenment. Next time, we look ahead toward the era of Alexius Komninos and discuss our new intimate source for details of palace life, his daughter Anna Komnini's famous history. The Alexiad. For any Italian speakers out there wishing to hear some Roman history in your native tongue, then I have good news. As you heard at the start of the show, the wonderful Marco Capelli is telling the whole story of Italy from Constantine to the present day in Italian. I've met Marco, and he is an engaging and entertaining host, and that was uh, talking in his second language. So I know... Story d'Italia is a great podcast. Check it out at italiastoria.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Grazie mille. Ciao. Ciao.